everybody. Before we start today's show, I want to let you know that we are going to be holding an event at GDC this year in San Francisco. So if you're at GDC or if you just work downtown near Moscone, you can come to our event. It is March 19th from 7 to 9, and you can get all the details at briannaparty.com. Hope to see you there. Thank goodness Christina will never know. (laughs) We're rocket recording cheating on her. This is a coup. (laughs) No, no, I'm not going to go up against Christina. Like, I'm not that dumb. Listen, you you only live once, is what I always say. (laughs) And you might as well go out in a coup. (laughs) An oral coup. (laughs) Oral with an A and a U. Against your beloved co-host. So, hey, hello, and welcome to Rocket (laughs) Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Hover and Fracture. I'm Simone de Rochefort, a video producer at Polygon.com, and I'm here today with Brianna Wu, Democratic candidate for Congress. (gasps) And no one else! (laughs) Because Christina has been called away on important Microsoft business. Here are the things I know. She's taking like three flights in the next three days. (laughs) And also she's going somewhere where it's negative 21 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's appalling to me. I think that we should probably. Is there some petition that we can sign? I, I see. I have a darker, more sinister <gasps> theory, Simone. Tell me. I think Christina was so heartbroken over the death of Luke Perry that no. she she was not in a state to record tonight. Because you weren't. I mean, you, Christina and I were about the same age, yes. and it's hard to overstate what nine hundred two one zero meant to our generation. Like it was huge. It was beyond huge. And I don't know, like you're watching the news and you see these shirtless like photos of Luke Perry from the 90s. Like it's it's heartbreaking to have someone like you crushed on fundamentally as a teenager die. It's weird. Yeah. And he was super young, too. Yeah. Just depressing. Yep. Yep. But I have to point out that what you're suggesting is that when Christina told us a few days ago that she wouldn't be able to record, you're (laughs) implying that she knew that this was coming. Well, I think Christina is psychic. I think she's hiding her psychic powers. I think she had a precognitive flash of what was happening. Yes. I respect her even more now. (laughs) And I respect Luke Perry, man. I am set. I mean, he's on CW show, acclaimed CW show Riverdale. Yeah. So I'm not unfamiliar with him, but I'm familiar with him as a hot dad. (laughs) <laughs> um, instead of a young shirtless stud in something called 90210, which I gather refers to a Los Angeles area zip code. <laughs> I don't understand this. You correctly understand that Luke Perry is a hot dad, but you incorrectly think Herodotus is a hot dad. So Herodotus I'm just, is a hot dad. I'm just, I'm just confused because these statements don't seem reconcilable. We're going to have to start another podcast to get to the bottom of this. Um, (laughs) Wow. Beverly Hills 90210 is available on Hulu, but don't go watch that right now because we have a lot to talk about on today's show. We're going to be talking about Anthem, the latest Bioware game, and our uh, hulking disappointment. We are going to have some, 
more crappy talking about YouTube and the child pornography, the efforts they're making to prevent child pornography from proliferating on their platform. How successful those may be remains to be seen. Um, And we'll also be including a special interview segment that Brie did with Amy Webb. Who is awesome. Who is awesome and wrote a book called The Big Nine, which is all about tech companies and AI. And Brie, do you want to give a brief summary of that right now before we get into Anthem? I think you're more of a professional than I am, Simone. I believe they call this the tease. Is that correct? Am I teasing it right now? The tease. I, I would like you to tease the people out there. Tease their little ear holes. So Amy Webb is fracking amazing. Uh, She is a futurist. Her job is to go collate sets of data and figuring out where technology is going. So for instance, uh, there's an Amazon Prime show, The First, uh, which was about, uh, starred Sean Penn. It was about us sending uh, the first rocket to Mars. She worked with that production company to figure out what technology is going to look like in 10 years. And that's part of why this show is so amazing. She has started doing research on AI and where we're going, and the effects it's going to have on society, and she's scared, uh, very correctly so, and wrote a very, very thoughtful, unbelievably good book about it. And we had a 23-minute talk about policy, and it's really, really interesting. So stay tuned for that. I want to point out, when you say she's a futurist, her when you Google her, it literally says American Futurist under her name. That's... yeah. That's what she does. The people should not discount this. No, they shouldn't. I didn't know this, but futurism has been a profession that's actually been around for centuries. And it's a real thing. It's a science. It's like you can go get tenure in futurism. Like it's a real legitimate thing. I remember having to read the Futurist Manifesto when I was in college. And I remember it just being really, it's written by this Italian poet And it's a really cool read. I don't know if they still stand by this particular manifesto, but I would read it because it's awesome. Anyway, hey, speaking of awesome, Anthem, a game that isn't. (laughs) So the latest Bioware game um, published by EA is called Anthem. It is a multiplayer online shooter with a short campaign and an ongoing multiplayer community, as many games have nowadays. We pivot to the games as a service model. And you might be familiar with Bioware from playing their games or from listening to us talk on this show, but we we talk about their games a lot because they usually have strong story components and characters that you can have relationships with, whether that be friendship or romance, whatever you want, and overarching, dramatic, like, world cataclysm stories that really get to the heart of what it means to be a human and to form relationships and to try to save the world and do good things. Um, And Anthem is not what the people expect from a Bioware game. Yeah. And I want to, I just want to frame this issue for the audience. This is not just about a video game. We wouldn't lead Rocket just talking about a video game. We're talking about a corner that the game industry, the AAA industry has painted itself into that is really, really, really harming our field. So this is, this is a wider story about a really prestigious company that ships some of the best narrative work in the entire world that was kind of forced to make a game that didn't really align with what they do well uh, as part of like a, a cash grab. 
And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to talk about other uh, things our industry is doing that is fundamentally harming it. So, um, Simone, like you've covered Fallout 76. Do you want to tell people a little bit about that? I do. So Fallout 76, much like Anthem, is an online-only game that was developed by a studio that has a history of doing not online-only games. Uh, It's Bethesda who have published... Three or four narrative Fallout games. Don't don't quote me on that number, actually. Since Fallout 3, they have been creating single-player, story-driven Fallout titles. And yeah. with Fallout 76, they uh, decided to do an online title uh, with no NPCs and a story kind of driven by environmental clues, which is something that a lot of Bethesda games have, but uh, driven purely by, like, audio logs that you find um, and also by player interaction. And it launched last fall, and it has been a an absolute crap show, I think I can say. I, I did not enjoy it when I played it. I have read some very, very compelling stories from my fellow Polygon employee, Cass Marshall, about parts of the game that she likes. But she's also extensively covered the ways in which the game fails in that it has ongoing issues with bugs and even this far into the game's life, we're like five months or something in, there's just been this enormous problem with people being able to hack the game and duplicate items and have all of the most powerful items in the game and basically just cheat their way to world domination. And this is something that was this potential for exploitation was kind of baked into the game because Bethesda did not do enough to like their their games are famously famously moddable and with this game it doesn't look like they took enough measures to make sure that it couldn't be just ridiculously exploited by right. bad actors in the player community so what and you it's have built is a, off this really old engine as built well. off this really old engine it looks janky as hell so what you have is this franchise that is known again for narrative and for single-player exploration in this interesting post-apocalyptic post-nuclear apocalypse world and it's turned into as Cass referred to it both positively and negatively a clown fiesta (laughs) of an (laughs) online game uh, which you can find good and bad in but is just completely it, it feels like a sort of desperate heel turn, not heel turn, that's a wrestling term, uh, pivot from the company that made it. So, and and this is why this is relevant. So you have, uh, you know, you have Bethesda, they put out Fallout 76. It doesn't really fall in with their core competencies. They release it. It is an abysmal failure. It doesn't sell well. Player base is not there. Uh, Bioware does the exact same thing. They spent six years making this game. Uh. They ship it. It's a mess. It's bricking people's PS4s, it was reported today. It's the lowest rated game they've ever shipped. So I don't want to like hammer on these two games as much as I want to talk about where the game industry is and why I'm so concerned. Because both of these games have something in common. Uh, 
you know, the the first Fallout Three that you shipped, it was a game that you could sit down. It was compartmentalized, and you could probably beat it in about twenty five hours. And if you wanted to, you could keep playing forever. But it was like a a sit down chunk of an experience, and you were done with. Yeah, you know, Mass Effect, Dragon Age. These are games that they were. You know, you could beat Mass Effect in 10, 15 hours. You'd do it. You would have experienced something. It's done with. What our industry has done is it's really invested in this games as a service model, Mm -hmm. which is great for the money men. Because think about this. You ship a game and you get the $60 that people pay for the game, but then they're constantly paying you. You've got revenue coming in from in-app purchases, and you just roll out new content to this one thing. So rather than trying to um, make a bet on a new game every, you know, several times a year, uh, a, a large company can just ship one game and maintain it. That makes sense from a money man perspective, but what has happened, like I'm just going to rattle off some of the games as a service that you're competing mm-hmm. with right now. Division one, Division 2 is about to ship. You've got Destiny. Uh, you've got Fallout 76. You've got um, you, you've got Anthem. Uh, I guess Metro isn't really in this vein. You've got Assassin's Creed. That's kind of a games as a service. It's not online all the time, but they're constantly rolling out new content. It takes forever to mm-hmm. finish. Every like, single it, Battle Royale game. Every battle, yeah. yeah. Uh, Fortnite. We, actually, we yeah. have a new... Um, we're, I feel like games as a service is very, very accurate, but it's also kind of an unwieldy thing to say. We're calling them living games on Polygon right now. Oh, oh I like that. Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, that's the core problem that the money men have. Uh, they, it compromises the game mechanics because Assassin's Creed, I would say, was a really good example of this, Simone. I'm, I'm still angry about this because <laughs> the Cassandra as a character is really good And the Greek story of that game is really good. And the combat is really good. But the idea with it is they just added so many islands. You're doing the same thing forever. And then when the game ends, rather than like making you feel like it ends, it just rolls you into the next DLC. Mm -hmm. So even after I spent so much time doing it, there's not a narrative payoff for me. And that's the problem with the game industry. It's like we we think that we can have like 12 of these attention-controlling games that you just put a ton of time in. Where are the days where you could have a Final Fantasy that you beat in 10 hours and you're done with it? It's interesting because I know most people don't finish games ever, but it, it seems like they're very... These games as a service, living games, are designed for people who don't need that narrative payoff because they're never going to be done finishing it. Right. So it's both it's both keeping them in, but it's also not expecting them to have an end point with that right. game. Right. And that's not what BioWare does well. That's not mm-hmm. what Bethesda does well. That's outside of their core competency. So if you have something like Apex Legends... That is a game, you know, you're playing that for like crowd control, like to to learn how to play with people. There's a skill element to it. That is the fun of the game. I have no issue with that as a games as a service, except mm-hmm. that you're competing against 20 different games. And I I really want to juxtapose this against something like uh, Resident Evil. And I want to tell you a story about the last mm-hmm. few days, Simone. Um, I got back from vacation and Anthem was installed on my PS4. 
And I pick it up and I start playing it. It's literally, it's like this this loop that you're on, right? Like mm-hmm. Westworld. <laughs> you you go do a mission, you get a gun, it's like one level higher, you go back, you repeat it, you do it again, and you're leveling up. You're not getting better at anything along the way. You're just like getting level four gun, level five gun, level six gun, gun. And I want to really juxtapose that with Resident Evil Remake. Uh, They put out a a DLC for it called Ghost Survivors. This is free uh, DLC. It's a bunch of four survivor uh, scenarios. So uh, you have the mayor's daughter and... This is a fantasy where she lives and isn't killed, and she's got to like run across this wasteland with zombies. And the idea is to get from point A to point B and survive, which is hard, but do it in the quickest amount of time. That's a very skill based run. That's and baller. it takes. It's awesome. I love it. I, I want to leave a, a clip in here of me doing like taking this unbelievably <laughs> sexist uh, character from Resident Evil, the mayor's daughter, which is just so hyper sexualized. And then you take her and like she's this fearless commando just beelining <laughs> for swarms of zombies in four minutes and making it to the end. I oh love it. Oh my God. But my point is with that, it's like this is a loop, but I feel there's so much skill invested in playing through a scenario like that and learning, okay, I turn here, I mash the A button here, I run around the corner at this angle, I turn here. But going through a treadmill for a game like Anthem, it's not skill-based. It's just wasting your time. And our industry only ships stuff like that these days. And I think it's killing us. It's so interesting because I have... I literally just interviewed an analyst the other day for a separate video um, just talking about this move from what he terms the portfolio uh, business model of making games, which he likened to baseball, where uh, you hit some singles, you hit some doubles, you hit some triples, and you hope that the home run kind of justifies the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you have all these games to show that your company made or your company published. And that shifted from the you know the 90s to today into this blockbuster model where a lot of these big companies like ea and activision they're going to put out one or two games a year and those games are going to live for the entire year um until the next game comes out and hopefully longer than that to provide this constant stream of revenue because that looks very very good to people who are stockholders in the companies and what he sees, and this is um, N. Guy Kroll, who works at Hit Detect, and he's wonderful and very intelligent. Uh, what he sees is potentially moving back slightly towards the portfolio model as these publishers and these um, these console makers start to make their own subscription services because you can't run a subscription service on one game a year. That the, the game is its own subscription service. But if right. you have something where, okay, I'm trying to, I'm I'm Netflix and I'm trying to get a lot of people to subscribe. I can't just have one, I can't have the new Marvel movie. I have to have a bunch of movies. So potentially as games move more towards streaming services rather than owning games outright, we could see more of these short narrative experiences or games with different mechanics coming back in. But right now, what we're definitely seeing is companies 
basically who are, because of what we expect as consumers, making enormous, beautiful games made by teams of hundreds, if not thousands of people um, that like they need to compete at a top technical level to be published by a AAA company. And the only way they can justify that is to make games that will keep people playing for them and keep people paying for them until the next big thing comes out. Yeah, I think, and that's that's a really great example, Simone. I had not thought about that. Netflix can bet on dozens of shows a year. Like, think about uh, Umbrella Academy, right? Like, mm-hmm. you put it in, you watch it, it's, what, 10, 15 hours long, and you're done with it, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, you feel a payoff. I would love to see the game industry move back towards that. Just because I pick up a game because I'm interested in it doesn't mean I want to dedicate the next year of my life to play it. <laughs> like, it's okay to just play, like, Far Cry 3, I love that game. Yeah. And you played it and you're, I, I just, I, there's, there's something that's fundamentally got to shift in the game industry. Cause I don't think it's working for anyone right now. Like the people that work in games, I think we increasingly don't feel as creatively fulfilled as we used to mm-hmm. because the money men have so much sway. And I think that these, mechanics of like Assassin's Creed. I like this game, but the the mechanics about weapons are fundamentally at odds with good Mm -hmm, game design. mm -hmm. So like this is, it's just not, it's not putting out stuff that is putting our best foot forward. And it's why I increasingly find myself going backwards to play games. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that's something that he, he also likened it to the, the film industry and obviously caveat, there are so many differences between games and the film industry. But if you think about movies right now, they're also kind of in a a stagnation period where there are, that industry is dominated by huge blockbusters. And that doesn't mean there aren't good, insightful, small movies made, but the conversation is kind of dominated by these massive movies. And part of what has allowed smaller filmmakers and indie filmmakers to game prominence is just that I, th- I think there have been more methods for distribution for for films and hopefully we can come into a place where games that are made cheaply and published independently will have a way to gain visibility that is better than steam which is the current like that's where they have to live now. Like they have to go out there and compete with all of the millions of garbage things that are on steam. Um, and that's a a horrible environment, I think for indie developers and, um, mid-level developers to be in unless they have the marketing money to make themselves visible there. So hopefully as the industry matures, like, I don't know what we'll see, but yeah, you're right. That right now is just, Oh, Hey, now to leave it. Yep. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by our friends at Hover. Buying a domain name is the first step to building your online identity. With Hover, you can find the domain that shows the world who you are and what you are passionate about. And as usual, Brianna, what am I passionate about? Uh, You're passionate about porgs. Porgs. I do like, oops, not progs. That's going to be very different. This is my own typo. I went to Hover.com. I typed porgs into their search bar. And now it's going to just feed me 
all of the URLs that I could have that have porgs in it, all of all of the TLDs that I could have, like porgs.xyz, for example, <laughs> that's only $11.99. Porgs.online, which is very compelling. Um, and then it has other offers like myporgsonline.com. Hey, everyone, the porgs are those cute creatures from the new Star Wars movie. In case you're like <laughs> listening to this and thinking, what is she talking about? Myporgs.com <laughs> is what I'm telling you. It looks like porgs.com is already owned, which props to the person who bought that. But I could have porgs.team and show off my team of porgs. Porgs.fan so everyone knows that I'm a fan of porgs. It was easy to find those URLs, and they were cleanly presented to me with a delightful user interface that was easy to parse and clearly had the prices listed next to each URL. It is a good customer experience. Ah. Also, there are no upsells involved. The price is what you get, so you got your clean interface, you got your price right there, boom, you know what you're getting with Hover. They also offer free who is privacy so that the bad guys don't get your information. And who doesn't need? <laughs> I got a little out of breath there. I'm so sorry for that weird pause. <laughs> who doesn't need a domain name? Everyone does. Protect your online identity. Everyone has one. It's because we're all protecting our online identities. It's important that yours stands out. So get some of those fun TLDs. Hover has over 400 domain name extensions to choose from which can help brand yourself online as the number one Porg lover. It also has a very cool option, which is .me, a wonderful extension to showcase something like a portfolio or just your job website where you show off the cool stuff that you've done. Um, tell everyone who you are, what you love, yourself. So if you have a great personal website ready for launch, grab that .me extension. It's a great way to stand out when you're sending your resume. The ME domains are on sale this month for only $9.99 over at Hover. That is 33% off your first year. And if you're new to Hover, you can get an additional 10% off any domain extensions for your first year. That's nuts. Go to hover.com slash rocket right now. That is hover.com slash rocket, H-O-V-E-R.com slash rocket. Get your portfolio website up and running. Or your fan website for the Porgs from Star Wars, who are edible. Just FYI. What? You wouldn't eat a Porg, Simone. Chewbacca ate a Porg. Yeah, but Chewbacca is, he's a, he's a monster, right? He's my friend. Well, he's your friend, but he's a monster. Like, you're the kind of person who would be friends with the monster. Okay, does that make me a monster by extension? I think by you're not a monster extension? unless you eat porks. Mm. Okay, I can get down with that. You know what I think we should do right now? I think we should interview my friend Amy Webb. That's a great idea. All right, you go away. I'm going to interview Amy, okay? I'm going to go be a monster go alone. Yes, go, go hang with Chewbacca. So our bonus guest today on Rocket, I am so happy to have here with us Amy Webb. She's an author and a founder of the Future Today Institute. She was one of the people that designed uh, the technology that we saw on the first, which was a show on Amazon about uh, the first expedition to Mars and colonizing Mars. And she also has a brand new book out today, which I'm really excited to tell all of you about. Amy, thank you for coming on Rocket. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. 
So tell us all about your new book. Sure. So my new book is called The Big Nine, and it is about the nine companies that essentially control and are building the future of artificial intelligence. Um, Overwhelmingly, they control the lion's share of patents. They have the top talent. They are partnered with the world's best universities. They are building out the custom silicone. They have the chipsets. You know, I could go on and on and on. So it, it doesn't mean that there aren't other companies in the ecosystem, but these nine are the ones that are building the future of AI and as a result of that are making determinations about the future of humanity. There are six in the United States and three in China. The Chinese part of the the nine are called the BAT. Those are Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And in the United States, they're what I like to call the G Mafia. Uh, So those (laughs) (laughs) those are Google, Microsoft, Apple, IBM, uh, Facebook, and Amazon. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people don't know this, but Tencent controls a frightening amount of technology uh, in my sector, the video game industry. They made big bets on Unreal Engine, which is what I've spent a career mastering. uh, And they own all kinds of game studios up and down the board. So even if we're talking about these companies being in China, I think it's important to note that we're so interconnected. They have a a much wider reach. Uh, How do you think we need to be thinking about this? You know, most of us keep thinking about AI as though it's on the horizon, uh, as though it's something futuristic that will someday show up. And when we tend to think about it, we also, unfortunately, anthropomorphize it, which is a way of saying we, we think about walking, talking robots. Um, artificial intelligence is already here. It just didn't show up the way that we imagined it might be um, in like what we've seen in, in comic books and in, in novels and, uh, and in movies. So it, it really is important that everybody has a better understanding of what all of this is because, you know, artificial intelligence, first of all, has been around for the past few hundred years in some form or another. Um, and, and really all we're talking about is um, autonomous systems that are capable of making decisions using a bunch of data. I mean, that's, that's really all that it is. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of early AI systems and processes quickly became boring, and we didn't even think of them as AI anymore. And in fact, most people interact with AI hundreds of times a day. They just don't realize it. So like the anti-lock breaks. So in your- are you talking about like autocomplete? Are you talking about autocomplete for Google search? Give, give somebody an example yeah. of what they may not be thinking about. Sure. So... Um, Something you're right. So, like autocomplete in their in their Gmail, um, the sorting and filtering and recommendations that you see in Amazon and Netflix, or since you know you and I are both gearheads, um, the anti-lock brake systems in modern cars. Those are examples of artificial narrow intelligence. When we're talking about uh, like AI, something I, I think about a lot is this has. This has tremendous applications for national security. And it's not just artificial intelligence. Like I think a lot of us, we think about, you know, Isaac Asimov and, you know, like like robots. You know, yeah. the, the truth is, if you segment this out, you've got machine learning and deep learning, artificial intelligence. The, the areas I'm most interested in as someone running for Congress have more to do with policy. Uh, we were talking yesterday on Twit about how, you know, we're automating penetration testing uh, 
across the board. And you basically have machines trying to hack systems all day long. They don't get tired. They don't get bored. Yeah, They can uh, basically have their IP address coming from anywhere. So when it comes to national security of the United States, what are the issues we need to start thinking about with, uh, with AI? Sure. And let me preface what I'm about to say with Um, just saying how excited I am that you're running for Congress again, because we absolutely need people like you. We need way more people like, like you who are making decisions about technology in Congress. So, um, I'm pretty happy to support you. And I say this often, if I lived in in your state, I would definitely vote. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I appreciate that. All right. Thank you. So, yeah, so here's the deal. Um, AI is not a tech trend. It's the third era of computing. It intersects with all other facets of life. We don't have a national strategy for artificial intelligence. We don't have a point of view on AI. Um, Our military is finally coming around to the idea that our future wars are going to be fought in code, not just traditional combat. When we think about the intersection of AI and diplomacy, as we should have been doing a decade ago, Um, We need to pay attention to things like deep fakes and um, generative adversarial networks that are now capable of generating images and audio files and videos that would fool even the most, you know, even somebody who has a really sharp critical eye. Um, It would be difficult to tell now whether or not um, those images, those videos are fake and also the, the text that these systems are able to generate. So there's a there's a um, propaganda piece of this. There's also AI shoring up our um, compliance and regulatory systems. Um, AI is part of our power grid. You know, I so, so all of these things um, sort of relate back to national security, how our government runs, uh, what our education system looks like, what the future of work looks like, and we unfortunately, I think, in Washington D.C., tend to talk about AI in these sort of layers of abstraction. Um, and that's, that's, that's unfortunate because in addition to paying attention, we also need to spend a lot more money on, um, research and development and testing and risk assessment, uh, and, and all of those things. I know the, the last, uh, third of your book, it's more about solutions and what we need to be thinking about here, not just on government policy level, but as a society, like one of the things, as I understand you discuss is talking about being, uh, much more skeptical about, uh, things we see online, uh, in the information that were presented. What, what, when it comes to really big solutions, what do we need to be thinking about here? Is it something an individual can do? Is it something we need to be thinking about as a society? Is it all of the above? What are what are our really big priorities on this? Sure, it, it's all of the above. So, um, and, and and I would include sort of a galactic global um, viewpoint as well. So, um, because we don't have any agreed upon norms and standards. Uh, we don't have any sense of um, global ethics or values. Uh, I'm proposing that we create an international body, which I'm calling Gaia. It's the hmm. Global Alliance on uh, on Intelligence Augmentation, uh, and this would be a hopefully nonpartisan group that is that that is able to withstand uh, the revolving door of politics, and it would be staffed with um, engineers and scientists and uh, ethicists and, you know, a good cross-section of people 
um, whose job it is not to create global regulations because any regulatory framework is going to be difficult in this area because it's still quickly moving. Um, So instead, what do guardrails look like? And how can we build a good solid value system that represents everybody? And how can that be updated over many years? And as we accelerate from narrow or weak AI to more generally intelligent AI, um, how can we how can we model risk and think through next order implications? So, um, and and in the book, I go into a lot of detail, and I even propose that we we locate that in Montreal uh, because Montreal is a uh, is a central location where there's really advanced deep learning uh, research happening right now. So, you know, that's my recommendation, but. Uh, at a national level, uh, one of the things that I recommend is creating a sort of ROTC um, for specifically for AI. And if you're willing to, uh, because one of the problems we have is the best and brightest are not going to work uh, on Capitol Hill. Right. They're going to the Valley. Um, and there's, you know, they're not going to the military. So there has to be some other way to, to think this through. And so that's uh, creating a, 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 an easy way to, to entice people into civil service um, for some period of time, I think is also necessary. Individual companies have a role to play. Um, they need to develop codes of contact, conduct. They need to take the databases that are in use and clean them up and audit them because they're riddled with bias. There's a lot there as well. Um, investors need to give AI, uh, the, the people who are working on all of these projects, more time uh, without constantly demanding um, new products and services that can be commercialized. Uh, they've got to give everybody room and they have to allow these companies to use some of that investment to do penetration testing and risk assessment, all of the, all the rest. And then as individuals, um, well, sorry, I skipped universities. So universities have a role to play. Um, it's, yeah. that's why it's like a big gnarly problem, but universities need to make space in their CS programs, their computer science programs for things like cultural anthropo- anthropology and, uh, world religions and, and um, philosophy uh, to help broaden the worldviews of the people who are studying all of this. And then finally, on an individual level, we have to stop fetishizing the future and AI as though it's something that's far off in the distance. It's incumbent upon us to put aside our misplaced optimism and fear and to investigate what's actually happening. Yeah. Now, so I want to take this, uh, what you just said, with two parts. So first, the university pipeline. Um, I want to preface this by saying, if Google wants to have scholarships at different colleges, I 100% support that. But I don't, the the programs I've seen as I've traveled the United States, I've talked to different CS departments, I don't think our pipeline is strong enough for, for training the kind of people that we we need for this. Um, and something I would love to see us do is when it comes to AI, cybersecurity, all of these really, all of these fields are going to define the next 50 years of the United States. I have long felt we need like scholarship programs. I think if you want to go to school for that, I think the federal government should pick up the tab for that if you're willing to serve in some respect. Maybe that's auditing your local school board and library. Maybe it's going through some of these data sets, looking for bias, trying to make our data more useful. Like, Do you have thoughts about that? How, does, how do we get from where we are today, where we're, we're having to bring people in from all over the world, which I have no issue with, but to kind of training the next generation to to have these skills and be working with these tools. I will agree to everything that you just said and raise you, <laughs> which is um, 
you know, so, so yeah. So, so part of the problem is that a lot of these programs are fairly homogenous. And if you are a person who is outside of those tribes, um, who tries to, you know, enroll in a program with a bunch of people that don't look anything like you, you're going to have a hard time. Um, you know, and, 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 even if everybody is very welcoming and very accommodating, it is difficult to be the the sole person who is the other. And and we've seen that time and time again. So the pipeline, you know, we hear people complain all the time that there's a pipeline problem in universities. Um, I would say that it is self-perpetuating. Uh, universities can redouble their efforts to make sure that there's, um, you know, a diverse group of people who are tenured track. Uh, you know, and so, so that the, the teachers, the professors and the researchers, um, are significantly more diverse. Uh, you are absolutely right about scholarships. Um, so the, you know, the G mafia can certainly fund scholarships, which is only in their best interest because they're going to need those, that workforce. Um, you know, and, and again, that also helps their inclusiveness and diversity, uh, you know, issues. But I would also say that the federal government should think seriously about how to overhaul or at least how to approach our education system a little differently. Um, The challenge with a lot of these CS degrees is that once you graduate, um, you you have to commit to lifelong learning. And and that can be very expensive. It can be cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So if we make these degrees, part of the degree system uh, include a mandatory, you know, one, one to three credit enrichment class a year. Um, yeah. you know, that, that, that will help our workforce in the future that, that serves everybody and the government can either fund it or help sub- subsidize it, subsidize it. Um, which I'm sure will be met with a lot of groans, uh, <laughs> you know, from Congress, but, not funding our education is short shrifting our future. I mean, it's, it's insane. It is absolutely crazy. Um, I couldn't agree more. And you know, I, I am a self-taught engineer. I grew up in Mississippi in 1994 when I started trying to learn computer science formally at my high school. I was the only resources we had was a copy of Turbo Pascal from 1983. Wow. And this was as we were moving to object-oriented programming. And I have to say, if I had not come from a family with a certain amount of privilege, I never would have been able to, to learn the skills I've based my career on. So I think it's I think we've got two problems here. I think engineering is best when people can come into the field and get started, maybe if they don't have that formal CS degree. At the same time, I really agree with you. It's got to be a lifelong commitment to learning. When I first got my job, it was programming uh, you know, Palm Pilot software, right? And doing websites with Adobe Go Live and ActionScript 1.0. If I'd stopped oh, learning wow. at that point, it wouldn't be helpful today, right? Like You've got to have a lifelong yeah. commitment to that. I also think the other side of this, and I know this is going to get a ton of pushback from our field, but we've really got to start talking about having a formalized 
like software engineer code of ethics the way that Absolutely. lawyers do. Um, you know, my dad, he was an obstetrician and every single year he would have to go and take a certain number of classes to make sure his skills were up to date as medicine changed. We need to have a culture uh, that that rewards you for going out there and learning more about these things. And I, I do think the best engineers want to learn new things. Like it's just kind of how we think. Of course they do, but not every, but, but this is the point that I'm, one of the points that I'm making in the book. Um, there's no time, right? Yeah. Especially as you get older and you start a family, like you've got a yeah. lot of other things on your plate. So if, if people are not incentivized to do this on their own and they're just, they're just trying to get by, uh, and they're under tremendous pressure at work to get products out, then it's not going to happen. I mean, yeah. the, you know, um, like my husband's an eye doctor, so he has to go through, you know, he's got to have a certain number of credits to maintain his license every year. You know, I would say that, um, <laughs> you know, in, in some respects, people who are working in the field, building, train, you know, training algorithms and and um, building new systems that make decisions on behalf of everybody, you know, I would say in some cases they are capable of more danger than my husband is, who, who is yeah. an eye doctor, you know, and, and yet yeah. we don't, we don't. So, you know, it would be terrific if the G mafia, not only Institute and collaborate, by the way, the worst possible thing is everybody comes up with their own separate definition of what values are. Um, because we, you know, and, and there's no collaboration across the industry. Uh, what you wind up with then is a lot of fragmentation and, and issues with interoperability, uh, which, which is also bad for the longer term. So can we just pause for a moment and reflect on how much it sounds like both you and I did not love action script. <laughs> when you said that I, I was like i had these like did slight heart flashbacks? palpitations i did yes. i had bad oh. bad flashbacks oh my god yeah i learned that i had every single adobe program back in the 90s so i just <laughs> when i was in school you could pick any one of them up for 200 dollars. so all yeah. of them illustrator go live photoshop uh, i could probably I'm, still quote you my photoshop uh serial number. <laughs> So I bet so, I bet your prescription yeah. and my eyeglass prescription is worse than it used to be because of trying to find those <laughs> tiny little dots in the US. I think you would probably be right about that. So last question. You know, one of the things that really um concerns me, like we were talking yesterday on on Twitch. Um, you know, I am concerned about the United States' ability to develop software solutions for national security applications. And I don't necessarily have a problem with outsourcing what we have to to other companies. Like a really good example is uh, cloud services. There has been a tendency with some government people to... uh, to offload databases to cloud service providers, which it has pros and cons. Like the the con is it's very expensive to taxpayers. Uh, the pro is all of your information security. It's centralized, so you have one place that's better defended, but you know it's also one single vulnerability. What do you think we need to be thinking about as far as 
the government's ability to develop our own frameworks, like to develop our own technology in this field. Do you think it's best to just offload that to, you know, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, Amazon, those companies, or is this something we need to be developing our own competency around? Right. So that's a really good question. And it's one that I've wrestled with for a while. I I think at this point, we've come too far. It would be impractical for the U.S. government outside of the military to develop its own custom frameworks for things. Um, You know, that being said, the government has a transactional relationship at best with Silicon Valley. Um, There's just, you know, first of all, they're geographically as far away as you can get in in this country from each other. Um, And there's, there really is no incentive for either side to work with each other. Now under Obama, we had the launch of the U.S. Uh, digital services, um, and we had a CTO, a U.S. CTO position, um, you know, and, and there was there was some leadership and continues to be, um, you know, in those offices and, and trying to make some of those inroads. But the reality is the government can't go it alone and the G-Mafia reside in the United States of America which means that um, there's going to have to be some kind of serious relationship building where tools and services uh, are built um, as part of our longer term strategy. And, you know, and it's going to have to be done at a reasonable price in service to all citizens. Those are actually pretty difficult things to wrangle, and it's going to require serious, courageous leadership. My concern with our current political landscape is that there's so much acrimony right now that it's it would almost be impossible for me to imagine a, an elected congressperson um, who is open to building those bridges in an optimistic way. It's my hope that that happens. But again, it's going to take serious, courageous leadership under very challenging circumstances. Maybe you're going to be that person. I, I hope I can be. Uh, we've got a long road ahead of us. I, I guess I could say one of the things that, that concerns me, I was talking to the EFF about this the other day, is we can't know if certain committees of Congress have passed laws that don't leave some of the things they do of big tech, if it like hides it away from the public in ways that oh, we can I never see. see. The the FISA court has been an example of some of this. So I, I guess what I would say is if we're working with Silicon Valley on some of this, I think the best case scenario for some of this is it does add a um, a public scrutiny component to it. Like it's really easy for me to imagine uh, facial recognition, AI, like ways that could really be deleterious to a democracy if there wasn't a oversight with that. So maybe if there's kind of a constraint there with working with Google or, you know, Microsoft on these things, maybe that, that helps you along the way with oversight, uh, of these systems. So I think that's a good place to leave it. Uh, I cannot thank you enough for coming on today, Amy, tell everybody about your book one more time and where they can get it. Sure. Thank you so much. So the book is called the big nine, how the tech titans and their thinking machines could warp humanity. Um, it is out. <laughs> it is out everywhere in North uh, North America. You can hopefully buy it at your local bookstore. Um, there's hardcover. There's Kindle. There's e-reader. 
There's Audible. Um, it's available on Amazon. Uh, it's available through the Big Nine, <laughs> including in China. <laughs> uh, wow. it's, it's it's available everywhere. I, I hope everybody will give it a read. Um, the, the first part sets up the argument, gives you a quick deep dive into what AI is. The second part is an optimistic, a pragmatic, and a catastrophic scenario. It's sort of like speculative fiction, but it's all based in data. The third part are concrete solutions and a new plan, a new blueprint for the future. Yeah. Well, I think one of my critiques would be when journalists write about these issues, typically they raise all the the problems and they don't offer solutions. So I bought this book wanting to read solutions so I can uh, propose better policies. So thank you for writing it. Thank you. Hey, everyone, I'm sneaking back in. This episode of Rocket is also brought to you by Fracture. Fracture is the company that can take your favorite images and print them directly onto glass for you to display in your home. And they make the perfect, thoughtful gift. These fractures are handmade in the Gainesville, in the Gainesville, Florida, you know, the one, from U.S.-sourced materials. And their sleek, frameless design goes with any decor. Ordering is super simple, and fractures come ready to display straight out of the box. They even include the wall hanger. It's a very fuss-free experience. Brianna, when you received your fracture from myself and Christina, would you say that it was a perfect, thoughtful gift? It blew me away. It did. So right here in my office, I'm looking at Brianna Wu for Congress. You got my logo printed on this beautiful glass. And it just, it was, it was so thoughtful and meant the world to me. So every day I look at it and think about what great friends you are. We did think a lot about it. And 90% of that thought was looking at color combinations and trying to figure out which ones we liked. We had a lot of options people. (laughs) But you know what color is the best? Green. Because Fracture is a green company that operates a carbon neutral factory, which they lovingly refer to as their Fractory. If you would like to add a Fracture print to your home, they really do make amazing gifts for family and for friends. And you can rescue all those photos that you take. You probably have hundreds or thousands of them on your devices. You can take those photos and go to fractureme.com rocket to get started and see how sleek those fractures look. You can also get 15% off your first order. That is fractureme.com rocket. Open it up now. Get 50% off. Again, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E-M-E dot com slash rocket. Thank you so much, Fracture, for your support of Rocket and Relay FM. And we're back. Whoa. <laughs> you can come out, Simone. It's safe. I was listening to your insightful conversation the whole time. Good stuff, right? My favorite part was when Amy also said that she would eat porgs. <laughs> you didn't cut that, right? Uh, no, I would. I would not. I want Amy to represent herself accurately as a porg eater, which is what she is. Thank you. Thank you for being honest, <laughs> Brianna. I would. I hey. know you'd never lie to me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about some child pornography. That's horrible as a segue, <laughs> and it's going to be a horrible topic. So just uh, uh, gird your loins, folks. But this is this is an important topic. It is very important yeah. um, because of the horrible connected online world that we live in. So what YouTube has done uh, has they've started taking steps against the exploitation of children on their platform 
by, so they say, temporarily removing comments on all but a select few videos that feature children under the age of 13. And these videos might be videos that have been uploaded by parents who have YouTube channels. Um, Some of them might genuinely be uploaded by bad actors. But what is happening, as has been pointed out by several prominent YouTubers, is that on these videos, uh, pedophiles will use the comment section to point out sections of the videos that can be taken out of context, uh, to connect with each other and share information. And they've also been ripping the videos off of YouTube and re-uploading them to their own channels um, so that they can do horrible, nefarious things on them because they are disgusting people. So over this last week, since YouTube has said that they're removing these comments, they said they have deleted 400 channels and tens of millions worth of comments related to pedophilia and child exploitation, which is horrifying. Good for them, but also that's horrifying. Uh, But this move came after companies like Disney and AT&T stopped advertising with YouTube out of concern over this happening on the platform. So far, we don't know if those companies have restarted their advertising relationship with YouTube, but them stopping it caused YouTube to take notice and also caused a lot of fuss within the vlogger community, which we're also going to get into. Uh, One interesting thing is that this is not the first time that YouTube has done a purge of disturbing kid-related content, and it's also not the first time that they have said that they are removing comments and closing comment sections on videos of kids. I think they did that in 2017. They did it in 2013. Um, And The Verge, which reported my former roommate and former colleague, Julia Alexander, was reporting on this on The Verge, and they actually ran tests to see if comments on some of these videos were turned off. And there are still videos of kids on YouTube that, of minors on YouTube that have comments on, including some that had been pointed out by YouTubers in their call-out videos where they were saying, hey, look at these comments. These are really messed up. Um, like, this is the flashpoint. This this was the, the initial action that led YouTube to doing this. Um, and the YouTuber who made the first call-out video um, had found videos that he flagged, and those videos got taken down by YouTube, but the channels were left active, which is another thing that makes me go, huh? Um, and within the YouTube community right now, there's a lot of dissension on how this should be handled. There's also some PewDiePie-related spinoff drama, but we're going to get <laughs> to that later. But first, I'm going to toss this to you, Bree. Do you think that YouTube is handling this the correct way? Well, I think that overall, YouTube needs a ton of work, right? Like this mm-hmm. is the very definition of a tech product that has been growth at all costs uh, to the point of becoming something very dangerous to the world. Um, I find it really, really stunning that you, you can click on like one angry gamer video, somebody critiquing Anthem, and then you're like one step away from having MRA videos served up to yeah. you about how to you know, be a pickup artist with women. And uh, you know, the YouTube is really a home of extremist views. And this isn't just my opinion. Their academics have researched this. And you know, they can show you how YouTube is really being used by bad actors to push the conversation in really extreme ways. So um, any woman 
that has videos on YouTube, you know this better than I do, Simone, will tell you that like the comments are not particularly the most progressive <laughs> place, you know, the place you're going to hang out. So it is utterly unsurprising to me that these comment sections are being used to you know, child exploitation for scams on kids that may not be old enough to understand this stuff. Like the the simple fact is YouTube is more popular than Nickelodeon was at my age. And they've got a tremendous social responsibility in how they run the service and the risk that they're exposing children to. Mm -hmm. And so far, Google has just largely chosen to ignore this responsibility. Yeah. I don't even know. Like for me, I hope they get I, I feel like a lot more channels should be deleted and shutting down those comment sections is a wonderful first step. I don't even know how they eradicate pornography, child pornography and exploitation from their platform when something like 400 hours of content are uploaded to it every, I can't remember if it's every day or every minute. And there's a huge difference between those two things, but essentially so much content that they like, you cannot have a person keeping an eye on all of it. And they've they've said that this particular content is low volume and high priority in okay. terms of how they're handling it, which good. Glad to hear both of those phrases put together. Love a low volume of this in general. Um, but it it's still, especially because the platform is so popular with children, it is so, so important, I feel, that they do everything necessary to combat that on their platform. And what I've seen from the YouTube community has been kind of disappointing. And it is a, a really messy situation in which a lot of the, the, the initial guy, Matt Watson, who uploaded the video saying, hey, this is messed up. Um, a lot of people actually got mad at him because they felt that he was encouraging advertisers to leave YouTube, and that's their revenue, hmm. um, which I feel is quite self-centered. But then Keemstar, who is an incredibly dramatic YouTuber who should not necessarily be trusted, but did find, again, the r rotten behavior in Matt Watson's own YouTube history on one of his former channels, um, not to the level of child exploitation, but basically just disrespecting women, um, which <laughs> on the internet, on the internet, oh, it's no. shocking. I know. And uploading proof no. of it to YouTube. So it's, and to me, nothing symbolizes just what a, a cesspool this platform can be more than this situation where there's bickering now over, you know, and there's, less than perfect people bickering over what should be how loud people should be about child exploitation existing on the platform while YouTube is kind of drowning in this sea of comments that comment sections that aren't being adequately closed and channels that aren't being deleted <laughs> like yep. oh my god but i mean this is probably not even specific to YouTube YouTube just happens to be a platform that's very uh very high profile and also one that a lot of kids use, unfortunately, and ones that yep. a lot of parents use. And maybe you shouldn't. <laughs> can can I give listeners like a little bit of a history lesson? Like this is in living memory. 
this is what it was like for my generation going up with children's oh, programs. Oh, boy. Do you know why G.I. Joe and Transformers are cartoons? Like, do you know the whole story behind this? Toys. Can I tell you this just in case you don't know it? Toys. It was a huge push. So in the 80s, there was a law that Congress passed that said you could not use uh, basically television to market, to basically advertise uh, toys to people. They didn't want it to become a whole thing. So they came up with this like multimedia strategy where they would just have a show that was out and they could show X number of seconds <laughs> of like a kid playing with the toy. And then it's like cut to the the commercial and all the, the cartoon and all of that. Like it's a multimedia thing. My point is within my lifetime, We've gone from Congress kind of going, well, we can see how this would um, kind of sell things to kids and maybe that's not a good look. Within my lifetime, we've gone to that to, hey, your eight-year-old could be watching a YouTube of this guy and there could just be child pornography down in the comments. Like, this is, this is, it's really shocking if you think about where we've gone and I just, it, if you've got a large platform, you have a huge responsibility. And I, I can't remember which one of your coworkers at Polygon said this, Simone, but it's like this would have been a great thing for them to have done 12 freaking years ago. Yeah. And it's too little, it's too late. And I think it really, like, tech has got to fundamentally change where we have people that are ethicists sitting on these teams and helping us make better calls. Well, that kind of defines every tech platform, right? Is that nobody foresaw or considered how Twitter could be used for large-scale harassment, how YouTube could be used to spread child pornography, um, how Facebook could be used to undermine democracy. Uh, and now well, I mean, they're people kind of just, saw that they just didn't work on those teams, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and and the companies, if the company, whatever work the companies did do in those early days to mitigate that was not large scale enough. It wasn't prioritized enough, or we just devolved quickly enough that whatever they did didn't matter. So, of course, you're wondering how this connects to PewDiePie, and let me tell you, <laughs> folks. PewDiePie is still engaged in a heated battle with the Bollywood YouTube channel T-Series for who can have the most subscribers. And they have been gaining on him. I think this is, I swear to God, this has been going for months. It feels like years to me. Um, I think it's been not a, not quite a year yet, but it's it's going and it's going fast. So a lot of people, uh, PewDiePie fans, mistakenly believing that if they discussed in the comments of T-Series videos, if they called the T-Series videos, which are, again, Bollywood videos, out for being child pornography, that those videos would be stricken down and the channel would be deleted. So <gasps> in the comments of the T-Series videos, you have a lot of people going, hashtag CP, get this filth taken offline, YouTube. Um, and that's the world that we live in. I don't, that's not going to affect T series at all. That's not how YouTube is determining what videos they take down. Um, but that's nuts, right? 
this whole PewDiePie thing, like I don't, I, I'm running for United States Congress. I don't spend a lot of my day focused on PewDiePie. <laughs> but I, I do have to say, I've seen this meme going around for months with people I love and respect on YouTube saying, go subscribe to PewDiePie. And I just, I feel ethically bound to point out this is the guy that just started screaming the N-word on video channels. This is the guy that... What did he do? He sent like a request to carve something to some people in Africa and it had some slurs on it and like pretended to be embarrassed and shocked on the stream. Like, it was a piece of paper that said death to all Jews in India. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, I I understand why this is a funny thing, but at the same time, it's, it's like, I mean, can't you do this with Markiplier or somebody else? Like, oh. I don't know. Oh. Since early 2018. So it has been happening for a year. My God. Oh, wow. Long year, Simone. Hey, Bree, what are yes. you up to this week? So exciting news. Uh, I'm heading off to New York uh, tomorrow to do a campaign event and also to uh, to uh, do Bloomberg, Emily Chang show. Congratulations. Uh, I don't know if you've read her book, Brotopia, but it is excellent. It is a history of the tech industry and uh, how it's a boys club. Um, you know, Emily Chang, she's not an academic feminist. She's an anchor at Bloomberg. And she went through, she uses this uh, image of, uh, she just goes into the entire history of our field and asks, like, why do women not feel welcome here? Uh, there's an entire chapter in her book about what happened to me during Gamergate. Mm -hmm. And because her book is sold so well, it's in a second updated edition. And oh, wow. uh, there's some changes with that. So I'm there. I also want to tell people, uh, for GDC week, I am thrilled to tell everyone on Rocket that I am going to be having a um, a uh, campaign event at GDC this year at the Press Club. So uh, we are going to include a link to the Eventbrite in the show notes, and I would love for you guys to come there uh, and say hello. I almost said hell yeah, and then I started to say heck yeah, and then I kind of said helk. And then I stopped. Yeah. <laughs> I just stopped talking. <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, Hulk put yeah. that on the record. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So excited. What am I doing this week? I am, I, my pinball video went out last week. Um, it, I'm so proud of me. it. I forgot to, and I forgot to share it with my mom too. Um, but oh. I'm going to put it in the show notes because I'm really proud of it. Uh, I did, a, I watched a ton of old news footage, which is one of my, favorite things to do so don't be too proud of me for that but i also did a ton of research and i really really enjoyed putting this weird story together and i love the the parts of history that kind of sound ridiculous to us today but are just fascinating and complicated and um still so connected to our lives Tell me all about this because I'm a big pinball fan. I don't talk about it a lot, but I love those games. Like, so this is about the history of pinball. What is your video about specifically? It is about how pinball gave video games their bad reputation, essentially, because when pinball was first created, those machines didn't have flippers, and you basically, basically, they were what was essentially gambling. viewed as gambling yeah. devices. Yep, yeah. exactly, uh, because they were seen as games of chance. 
Uh, they were made by the same companies who made slot machines and cigarette machines and other kinds of vending machines. And the distribution of those machines was often controlled by the mob. So they were kind of inextricably tied to the mob and gambling. But they were also seen as this thing that would attract kids and make them like spend their lunch money on these machines, one more pull of these machines, and maybe beat up other kids for their lunch money so they could play more. Like, the language used to describe kids' obsession with pinball, I barely touch on this in the video, but the language used to describe kids' obsession with pinball is almost exactly the same as how we talk about kids being obsessed with video games. Like, they refer to them being zombified and obsessed and neglecting their schoolwork. Like, it's a direct correlation it's so fun um i love zombified children but yeah so it's basically (laughs) about how that mistrust of pinball machines um and that banning of pinball machines in major cities contributed directly to or is a direct lineage to how video games have been kind of seen as bad actors throughout their whole history even though now we have like a 40 year old maturing industry they still have this sort of taint of of like in, of, of inappropriateness and child corruption on them that just doesn't come off. Yeah. I know that my life took a dark turn once I started playing the Star Trek uh, pinball game in the 90s. Look at like, you now just, running for, yeah. for Congress. I'm, I'm with the worst people on Earth, Simone. It's... Was all These games have to be stopped. <laughs> I gotta ask you, what's your favorite pinball game? You know, uh, I actually have not played that much pinball. I really? like whatever one. I know, actually, I know what one I like. It's the one that was on Windows machines in the nineties. Okay, so I got. I, I want you to do this while we're on the air. Type in Xenon, X E N O N. Xenon pinball. Look at that gorgeous art. Oh, my God. Okay, so I want to describe this to listeners. This is the most sexualized, like, it starts, it's beautiful art. Don't get me wrong. It's it's real gorgeous art, but it's like this shot of a woman's butt, and then the xenon, she's like this computerized space robot-looking thing. This was a game that uh, it was the first game to use digitized voice, and one of the first women to do sound design uh, in pinball, she's actually a legend from this game because she digitized her own voice as you're playing it. It's really because it's dun, 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 dun. it's like builds up to this fever pitch as you play. And the the voice clips are so hypersexualized. It's like, oh, ride me again. No. Try tube shot, like all this stuff. But it is a mesmerizing game. And what I think is so interesting about that art is like you look at it and it tells you like what does Xenon even mean? But it's like you're telling yourself a story from that or am I just wrong? No, you're not wrong. Like even though there's a lot of TNA on this, like it, the art is beautiful as you say and it's really evocative and like it, it doesn't sacrifice its sci-fi future vibes for, for the TNA, you know? Yeah. They seem fairly yeah. well integrated. It's tastefully done. Looks like done, a print you'd have on your wall. Yeah. It looks like the cover right. of one of those old pulp books, actually. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It's a good game, too. So, Bree, where can we find you online? I can find me at Brianna Wu. Uh, you can also find me... Oh, God, I've got to say this, Simone. We are launching a completely new website this week. This is not like a... You know, this is... It's a really 
full-fledged, awesome site done by a professional team. Uh, it's Brianna Wu for Congress. That's coming up. So you can find me there. Um, and I have an ask for every single Rocket listener. Uh, we've got a video coming out this week that's about me telling my story. So uh, you please follow me on Facebook. I would really ask you guys to share this when it comes out this week. It's a hard story to tell about being disowned by your family and how that like made you made me commit to looking out for people. But it's a true story, and I hope you will uh, watch it and share. So you can find that at Brianna Wee for Congress. I've put the link to the website in the show notes, so you can find it there if you forget it. I. Uh- and you can find me, whoa, on Twitter at Doom Quasar <laughs> and at youtube.com slash polygon. Uh, hope my job doesn't go away because YouTube sucks. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> if you like this show, you can review it on Apple Podcasts and wherever podcasts are found. And you can also share it with a friend so that they, too, can enjoy our dulcet tones. And please do that because that helps people find the show and it just makes life better for everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This episode of Rocket is terminated. Terminated.